If you would, turn your Bible, turn in your Bible to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. And as you turn there, I've got to confess that I'm feeling uh, an unusual amount of pressure this morning because right before I came up, my daughter Caitlin just turned to me and told me, Dad, don't say anything that makes me need to color in yellow because I don't have yellow. <laughs> so I don't know what to do about that. I didn't think through my sermon in terms of colors and what colors I was going to be referencing. So, Caitlin, I apologize in advance if you need to use yellow. There's a familiar theme that plays out over and over again in the stories we read and in the movies we watch. And that theme has to do with rescue. Rescue. We love to see rescue happen for a soldier who's trapped behind enemy lines or for a damsel in distress or for a lonely parent, or for a desperate animal. From Buzz Lightyear rescuing Woody from a life of being a collectible, to the saving of Private Ryan in World War II that John mentioned a couple of weeks ago. We love to hear and tell stories of rescue. Now there's something that that resonates uh, about these stories. It resonates deeply within us. These stories of rescue, they they seem to latch on to something that's that's a part of us. And it's not just true of stories in general, it's true of stories in this season as well, this Christmas season. The stories and movies that are often told and watched, they they revolve around this theme of rescue. So it might be a rescue from from gloom and despair. So you watch Charlie Brown, Charlie Brown's Christmas. Or we think about George Bailey and It's a Wonderful Life. He's on the verge of ending it all when Clarence intervenes to help him understand the worth of his life. He's rescued. At other times, the Christmas rescue or Christmas miracle is, is, is from one of contempt and disgust. So you might read of the squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner Scrooge in Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol. Like with Scrooge, it's, it's the same rescue from contempt that plays out in a humorous way in How the Grinch Stole Christmas by Dr. Seuss. The Grinch hates the joy and the noise of Christmas. So he steals all the presents. The pop guns and bicycles, roller skates, drums, checkerboards, tricycles, popcorn, and plums. He takes the Who's Feast, Who Pudding, even the Roast Beast. And then just as he's about to send all that he has stolen into oblivion, he hears a noise, right? He hears a noise coming up from Whoville. And this is the moment he's been waiting for. He's been expecting this noise to come. Because the Who's will wake up to find no Christmas is coming. Their mouths will hang open a minute or two. Then the Who's down in Whoville will all cry, Boo-Hoo! And as he stops to listen, he is shocked to find that what he hears isn't sad, but entirely glad. Every Who down in Whoville, the tall and the small, was singing, even without any presence at all. And then here's where the rescue happens. The Grinch thinks of something he hadn't before. And Dr. Seuss writes this, Maybe Christmas, the Grinch thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. It's at this realization, this moment, that Christmas means a little bit more, that everything changes for the Grinch. He's rescued as his heart grows three sizes that day, and he returns to make everything right again. He brings back the toys and the food for the feast, and he, the Grinch himself, even carved the roast beast. 
But what is it about these stories, these rescues, that keep us telling them to each other again and again and again and again? Why are they such a feature of the fabric of our society? And to put it simply, I think it's this. We all know that we need to be rescued. We recognize that this world isn't as it should be. Our relationships are not as we want them to be. Our health as we, and not as we hope it would be. Disappointment is constantly knocking at our door. It's in our kitchens. It's at our desks. It's all around us. If there were no problems, there would be no rescues. No problems, no need for rescue. But there are problems all around us. Big problems and small problems, serious problems and silly problems. And so we want to hear and we want to tell and believe these rescue stories. They give us some hope that life could be better, that it should be better, that it will be better. But all of these rescue stories, from the silly to the serious, for as enjoyable and heartwarming as they are, they may be, they're only faint shadows of the rescue authored by God. The rescue that's authored by God, the maker of heaven and earth, the rescue that breaks into our, our sin-sick world in the coming of Jesus Christ. And we don't tell this rescue story because it's meant to just warm our hearts. It's not told so that we can walk away with a good lesson in morality. Like, go away, do better. Now, the point of this rescue story is not so that we can now have everything we want. The point of this rescue story is God. God and His glory. God and His love. He is the author and the main character of this story. He is the divine rescuer. And I want us to turn our attention this morning and consider 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. If you're there, you can look with me at the Word of God. God's words for us. God speaking to us this morning. 1 John 4, verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You for sending Your Son, manifesting Your love to us in this way. And help us to know and believe and trust that you indeed sent your Son to die for us and that he is now living and reigning. And this changes everything for us. Would you open our eyes this morning that we might behold you, your glory, your love, your goodness and grace. Spirit, speak to us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning... And this shouldn't come as, as a surprise to you if you were here with us last week. This morning, we want to take time to remember this story together. The Christian life is a life of remembering. We are a people that remembers, a church with a memory. We remember what is true, and then we live in light of that truth. And this is always what we are to do. As Christians and as a church, as we come back to this truth again and again and again. We tell this story again and again and again. And this morning is no different. We are a same things church, and the things we come back to are right here in the Word of God. So I don't have anything new for you today. In fact, 
every week. I don't have anything new to say to you. We don't have anything new for you as a church. If you want something new or novel, go to the Apple store this week. But this is the church. And all we have is the old, old story. And we will tell it again and again because it's the only story that matters. It's the story that brings definition to our lives. So as Fanny Crosby wrote, I love to tell the story of unseen things above, of Jesus and His glory, of Jesus and His love. I love to tell the story because I know it's true. It satisfies my longings as nothing else could do. There's this wonderful little verse in, in Paul's letter to the Philippian church, Philippians 3.1. Paul says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So brothers and sisters, to say the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. We don't remember, we don't tell these stories as something that just took place in the past once upon a time. We remember these things as present reality for us, for all those who believe in Jesus Christ today. And so as we remember this rescue, it's a rescue that we remember that continues to happen now. It's the story of the gospel, that which we received, that by which we are being saved. And our story of rescue, it begins a long time ago. It begins in the beginning, in a garden. And there was a time in human history when man and woman existed in, in perfect bliss, complete perfection, fellowshipping with God in the Garden of Eden. They dwelled with Him. All their needs were met. They had no longings. Everything they needed was satisfied. Everything was as it should be. God as Creator was Lord over all. Man as creature was joyfully subject to Him. Then, sin entered the world. It entered the world through a lie, through a questioning of the wisdom of God, through a doubting of the love of God, through two bites from a piece of fruit. Sin led to Adam and Eve being, being sent out of this garden, banished. Their access to God was gone. So no longer did they live perfectly fulfilled because of sin. Life would be hard. They would labor and toil and fight, and all hope seemed lost. But as this curse befalls them because of their sin, and the serpent is cursed because of his deception, hope sweeps in. Because as God curses the serpent in Genesis 3.15, we read that the offspring of the woman shall bruise the head of the serpent. So when hope was waning... God reveals a promise. A snake-crushing rescuer is coming. One who will overcome all of this evil. Now fast forward several years and God has preserved for himself a people for his own glory. He does this through Noah and his sons, then Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. When the people of Israel become enslaved in Egypt, God delivers them. Divine rescue comes through Moses. God frees them from their bondage. And then as they flee, they find themselves trapped. The Egyptians in, in front of them, the Red Sea at their backs. But at just the right time, what happens? The rescue comes. God parts the waters and the people cross on dry land to safety. In the Old Testament history of Israel is, is littered with stories just like this. Where God saves His people, rescues His people again and again from the brink of devastation. Devastation. 
and annihilation. It seems like all hope is lost, and then at just the last moment, the rescue comes. But the problem with all of this was that the rescue had to keep coming, right? More and more and more rescues had to come. And whether it be rescue from the enemies of Israel's attacks, the enemies of Israel attacking them, or from the people of Israel themselves wandering, rescue was needed again and again. And amidst all of this, God sent prophets to his people. We've already heard, we've talked about some of them today. We've heard from some of them today. These individuals, they represented the voice of God to God's people. And it was through their words that the people held on to hope of a rescue. So the people would remind themselves of the words of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming. The rescue is coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This day is coming. Here in these words and many others was, was this promise of rescue. And so God's people waited, looking for this rescuer to come. Now hundreds of years then go by with no clear sign of rescue. And eventually the Romans occupy their land, but still there is no rescue. Where is the hope in all of this? Where is God in all of this? He seems to be silent. What happened to his promised rescue? Perhaps you feel like you're there this morning. Where is God? What happened to his goodness and grace? I need to be rescued. Where is his rescue? It's into this darkness that the light of the world shines forth. And it happens in the most unexpected way. Now remember, these are, these are the people that God made. And it's the people that God has rescued again and again. And they keep going their own way, forgetting who he is, not trusting his love. But then there comes a point in time that all of human history was being prepared for. And so when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. And our text in 1 John describes this moment as the love of God being made manifest among us. The love of God being made manifest among us. What does it mean for God's love to be made manifest? Well, it means that in this action, in this sending, the love of God is revealed. We see the love of God. God's love seemed so hidden before, but now it has been fully revealed. You go, go to Costco or whatever big box store and you go look at all the TVs and they're, they're vibrant colors. And it's like, wow, I never knew you could see that stuff on a TV. This is God's love being fully revealed. Uh, whatever, OLED, whatever the latest technology is. More vibrant than that. And if you've ever doubted God's love, if you've ever questioned God's love, and I think if we are all honest, we would all say at some point we've doubted God's love. This is so important for us to see. Because look at the phrase right before verse 9. At the end of 1 John 4, 8, we see this phrase. God is love. Now, we really like that idea, right? Our culture really likes that idea. God is love. If God is love, then this must mean that God is all about what I want. 
all about meeting my needs. If he is love, then he must be all about doing for me what I want for myself. But this is not love, and this is not what it means for God to be love. God's love is not defined by our petty wants, our fleeting wants. It's defined by God's character and actions. And here, not in getting what we want, but in what God has already done is where God's love is most revealed. So if you doubt God's love, look to this moment when God's love is made manifest among us. If we were to ask, how is God's love most clearly seen? The answer would not be, oh, it was the day I was saved. Or it was when I met my spouse. Or it was when my child was born. Or it was when I finally got the present I've been waiting for all year. That's not when God's love is most clearly seen. The answer is found in what John says next. This is how the love of God was made manifest among us. Verse 9, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. I want us to consider this phrase for a minute. God sent His only Son. This wasn't some happy accident. This is what God had planned to happen in history. As real as you and I sitting here today, God sent forth His Son into the world. At the right time in a little place called Bethlehem, God sent His only Son to reveal His love, to make manifest His love. And God sent His Son into the world. Like, wasn't there somewhere else God could have sent Him? This is the Son of God, the only Son of God, somewhere more regal and holy that this Son could have gone. I don't know, maybe someplace that's maybe a little less, like, sinful. But God revealed His love as His Son is sent into this filthy, sin-stained world. And when his mother needed somewhere to deliver the baby, there was no maternity ward waiting to welcome her. There was no inn to put her up. So the Lord of all glory was born in a stable, and he was laid in a feeding trough. He then grew up a poor carpenter, and for 30 years he labored in complete obscurity. God's very Son sent into this world, overlooked, ignored. God sent His Son into this selfish, self-centered world, one that is full of disappointment, full of injustice, full of grief. And this is God's Son that we're talking about, sent into the world. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, this Christ sent into the world, to be born in a stable. For God to send His Son also means that God's Son already was. All of us, we are here because we were born into this world. The Son of God was sent into this world. This Son existed eternally. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And then the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. When he took his first breath in that stinky stable, this was not the beginning for him. He was sent from heaven. And why was he sent? Why did he come? John tells us, God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That we, that we might live through him, that we speaks of all of the people of God, including us today. 
But you see, there's, there's an assumption that this verse makes that's, that's far too easy for us to miss. Think about what this says about us. God sends His Son so that we might live. Why might we need someone to come so that we might live? Why? It's because we're spiritually dead. Ephesians 2 tells us that we are dead in our sin. The story of God's wayward, rebellious people is not just rehearsing a memory of previous generations that we are completely detached from. It includes us today. Their story is our story. So sure, we walk and breathe, we exist, but we don't truly live. We are slaves to our sin. We truly cannot have hope. We have all done all that we possibly can, yet we're still miserable failures. We're incapable of finding lasting joy on our own. All that we can do is look for more of what can't actually satisfy us. We are dead in sin. So we need to be rescued in order to have life. And it's here that God sends forth His Son, that we might live through Him. It's in this coming that the grace of God appears. And this grace is something that if we took an honest account of the reality of human history, it's something that we could never expect, that we could never hope for. You can turn on the TV and watch whatever Christmas, latest Christmas movies out there, and you, you're waiting for the Christmas miracle, right? We always expect that everything's going to work out and people are going to be happy. If you look at our situation, the reality is there's no way that we could ever expect things to work out for us. Our situation is hopeless. The history of humanity is literally marked by ruins on top of ruins. And give it enough time and there's going to be more ruins on top of those ruins. But God's grace is God stepping in. It's God acting. God's grace is God's work to bring healing, to bring life. And this grace is not something we only need in those desperate times. It's not only what we need for salvation and then we move on to put forth our best effort. As one pastor said, he said, grace is not a safety net needed only when our tightrope walk amid sin goes wrong. Grace does not make God a last resort when we've grown tired of sin. Grace is not for new Christians only, leaving those of us experienced in the faith to rely on effort. Grace is who God is in Jesus Christ. Grace is given in the sons so that we might live each and every day through Him. It's what's given to us in God sending His Son for us. And yes, God sends forth His Son for us. God sends forth His Son for us. Now, if we have an accurate view of who God is and who this Son is, seems a little presumptuous to say that God sent him for us. How could anyone ever say that? God sends his son for us. I, I think we are just overly familiar with that idea. It doesn't really catch us off guard. God sent his son for us. We think that we maybe deserve something of this. Yeah, of course God sent his son for us. But how did we get in on this? What did we do to deserve this? Now I think, without ever really acknowledging it, we often think of God like Santa Claus. 
sadly. He sees us when we're sleeping. He knows when we're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good, so be good for goodness sake. You know, this, this free grace, this undeserved grace, it's just a little uncomfortable. Like, we've, we've got to do something. We need to be good for goodness sake. So we think of God like Santa Claus, watching over us to see if we'll be naughty or nice. And then he'll decide what he'll give us. But our problem is that none of us can make the nice list through anything on our own. And this is what John tells us in verse 10, that none of us can make this nice list. Look at what he says. In this is love, not that we have loved God. Just stop there. Not that we have loved God. He says right there, God sends forth his son. He gives us life in his son, not because of anything we've done. Not because we have loved him. None of us have done what we ought. None of us have been perfect. None of us have been wholly righteous. None of us has been good. No, not even one. And our hope is never and can never be, hey, look at all I've done. I've got more nice stuff on the ledger than naughty stuff. Or it can't be, see what a great love for God I have. No, no. Our boast, our hope, is only in Him. Why then did God send forth His Son? So that we might live through Him. John answers that in verse 10, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. This is love. He loved us. Completely unmoved by anything on our part, God loved us. This love, this grace is undeserved and unexpected. And it's unimaginable in its goodness. Even though we haven't loved Him, even though once we were hostile to Him, in love, God sent forth His Son for us. And this is what the angel announces to the shepherd on that great night. The angel brings good news of great joy. It doesn't get any better than this. And then the angel says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This is the good news. You need a Savior, and He has come on this day to save you. This is grace. This is grace because of who He is, but it is also grace because of what He has come to do. God sent forth His Son for us, to do something. He came forth to do something that we, had no, that we had to answer for. Something that we could not do for ourselves. Look again at verse 10. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. His Son was the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is not a word we throw around much. It's not going to be a word that you read in any Christmas cards, more than likely. What is in this word? And why are we talking about it today? Well, to understand propitiation begins with understanding that God is holy and righteous and just. And being holy, righteous, and just, He must punish sin. Anything that's not holy cannot go unpunished. And while God is love, 
God does not show love at the expense of His justice. He is always, all the time, loving and just. And here's where it becomes relevant to us. We are sinful people, and because we are sinful people, we deserve God's just wrath that punishes sin. Every one of us. Doesn't matter how old you are, how young you are. You deserve God's just wrath that punishes sin. Propitiation is what God provides to satisfy His his wrath. It's what God provides to satisfy His wrath. Propitiation is God's love for us seen in Jesus Christ coming, but not only coming, in taking on God's wrath for our sins. And that took place on the cross. And at the cross, our sin goes punished. And through faith in Jesus Christ, we go free. Here is love vast as the ocean. Loving kindness like a flood. When the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood. Later on that hymn says, On the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy float a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers pour incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Here is love. We don't live our lives trying to prove ourselves worthy of rescue. We don't need to desperately figure out how to get ourselves out of the mess that we're in, which is what this world is filled with. People who are trying to get themselves out of the mess that they're in. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Brothers and sisters, we gather here today and the reality of Christ's coming, His birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, they can seem like stuff of fairy tales. They can seem so far away, so detached from our reality, from our problems, from our lives. But this is the truth that we rest in. It's the story that we are now a part of. It's the hope that carries us through life's storms. You know, the Grinch was on to something at that moment of awakening for him. Right? We might call it a conversion. Only in the Grinch's terms. Maybe Christmas, he thought, doesn't come from a store. Maybe Christmas, perhaps, means a little bit more. Yeah, you think? A little bit more? We don't have to wonder if it means a little bit more this week. It means infinitely more because God sent forth His Son for us. Jesus Christ came to save you and me. And this has nothing to do with us. We fail. We wander. We sin. We grow discouraged. We become downcast. We suffer and experience affliction. We cannot save ourselves. It doesn't matter how famous you are. You cannot save yourself. It doesn't matter how much money you have. You cannot save yourself. It doesn't matter how much power you have in our, in our culture. Not going to save you. Doesn't matter how healthy you are, it won't save you. Doesn't matter how much stuff you have, it won't save you. But God's answer to all of our problems is found right here in this baby that was born in Bethlehem. Brothers and sisters, it takes a child to save you. I heard one pastor describing how he thinks of all of all of history 
as this cosmic battle between good and evil, which is how the Bible often describes it. And then he describes, you've got uh, Satan there with his, with his armies, and I mean all the, all the demons and all the evil in the, in the world, all on this side. And they come out on the battlefield. And God comes forth with his son, with a baby. And God says, this is no match. No match. My son, you are no match for my son. That's all that it took to save us. Isaiah, in his, his prophecy, Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, describes this son that's come. And this is how, who he is always. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And then it says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. When he was born, when he's lying in that manger, the government is upon his shoulder. All authority rests in him. And then it goes and lists four names for this child. First, wonderful counselor. He is the wonderful counselor. As counselor, he has all wisdom wrapped up in him. He is wisdom itself. As the wonderful counselor, his counsel is not just impressive, but miraculous. There's not a situation in your life that he is not wise to overcome, that he does not know and have an answer for. He is the wonderful counselor. So, brothers and sisters, look to him. He is the mighty God. And as the mighty one, he speaks and things happen. He is the creator. He makes the sun stand still. He makes wars cease and kingdoms rise and fall. But not only is he mighty, his might is divine. He is the God of God, the King of kings. He is creator and sustainer, ruler and deliverer. He is the one who has vanquished death and crushed the serpent's head. He overthrows his enemies with ease. He is the mighty God, so lean on him. He is the everlasting Father. And as Father, all his dealings are gracious and good. This isn't a statement, a Trinitarian statement. This is meant to describe the type of person this son is. Psalm 103 says it this way, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He's not just father for a season or a time. He is the everlasting father. From beginning to end, this is who he is, how he remains, yesterday, today, and forever. He is trustworthy and good and kind. And with his love, there is no end. He is the everlasting father. So trust in him. And he is the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. He brings an end to all struggling and strife. He brings fulfillment to those who cannot be satisfied. He brings well-being to those who are stricken. He brings relief to the anxious, harmony to the conflicted. He takes those who were once his enemies and reconciles them to himself. And while we were far off, he brought us near by his own blood. His favor is completely upon those who are his. He himself is our peace, the Prince of Peace. So rest in him. Isaiah goes on of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. Now, for us in this world, all good things diminish over time. All good things diminish over time. I, I will, I'll go through seasons where I'll listen to like an album or an artist 
And that's all I'll listen to, and I'll really enjoy it, and I'll listen to it again and again and again. And then after like, some, it depends on how good they are, but after a week or a month, I'm like, eh. It's, it's okay. Like, I want to have the feeling that I had when I first listened. Not now. And so you kind of long for that. And there's this decrease of joy, decrease of goodness. But of the increase of Christ's rule, His authority, His power, His glory, of the increase of His peace, there will be no end. Every day will be better than the one before. On the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And forevermore. And how will we know this will happen? Well, we know because Christ came. Isaiah tells us it was the, it's the zeal of the Lord of hosts that will do this. It's God's passion to save His people in this way. And to deliver them to His kingdom of light. This is what God is all about. Hear this good news this morning. God is faithful. God is eternal. God is love. And He so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank You that in a completely unexpected and undeserved way. You sent Your Son in the fullness of time to live the life of holiness and obedience that we could not live. And He did that in our place. But not only that, He went to the cross. And He died. And because He came, because You sent Him, we might have life through Him. Thanks be to God. So Father, would You help us to live with You as the Lord of our lives? Would You help us to walk in obedience, loving one another as You have loved us and gave Yourself for us? Thank You for the time that we get to remember and to rehearse the goodness of Your grace, of what You've done for us in Jesus. Would we live our lives to His glory alone? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.